I'm so excited to bring you today's episode, which has a little extra International Women's Day flavour. Joining me to talk about the issues affecting women in business today is serial entrepreneur Sharmadine Reed, founder of War Nails and The Stack World. Shah has been on an epic journey, moving from running salons to building a global technology business. I'm your host, Bex Burn Calendar, and this is Sound Advice, Get Year One in Business Right, brought to you by Sage. Let's dive in. Hi, Shah. Hello and welcome. How is your week going? Hi there. My week is going so-so, trying to maintain momentum. It's a funny time of year, isn't it? Because it's like everyone is just about pulling themselves out of the fog of having time off over Christmas and then sort of needing to get back up to speed and then the pressure of trying to, as you say, meet all the goals for the first quarter of the year are now starting to pinch. That's exactly it. I already find that I'm out of the loop of my routines that I set for January the 1st, but there we go. I want to start right at the beginning of your business journey because you were studying fashion, is that right? So you were kind of on a different path. So what ended up shifting you into an entrepreneurial journey, an entrepreneurial mindset? It's not necessarily the entrepreneurial aspect that I am like really engaged with. It really is the community building aspect. And it just so happens that community building right now is what all businesses want to be, right? They want to have really loyal customers that are connected together through some higher purpose in, you know, that would be described as a community. I've always been creative. I've always started things and I've always started things where other people can hang out in them. And I just, you know, saw a huge gap in various different markets that I'm trying to fill with the endeavours that I do. So your first sort of venture was a magazine, right? Because you wanted to bring out these amazing hip hop women and the styles and the fashions and you wanted to showcase it and talk about what was happening in those trends, bringing women into that space. Believe it or not, right, the stack world is the first thing that we've kind of said that we are trying to create a space for women. And even then, I'm very hesitant about saying it because ultimately it's all marginalized communities which does include some men and what I just feel uncomfortable with is that a very small amount of people determine what the society looks like for the rest of us you know even though they're not the consumers of it so even though I made war um, magazine for women in hip-hop I never really explicitly thought oh I'm creating this product for women what I thought was I'm a black woman And I don't feel comfortable with how I see black women represented. That was the impetus for making WA magazine. And actually, in the very first issue, because I was only 19 and completely naive, I actually said, like, we're not feminists. And then later on, a famous photographer wrote me a note on email saying, you are feminist. This is exactly what feminism is. Go do your homework. And I was like, "Okay, maybe I need to look into this. Well, maybe we should talk about that and talk about some of the barriers that you've come up against. The challenge that I've got in talking about my personal experience is firstly that it's a huge anomaly because in truth, I don't feel like I faced barriers like head on. I went to an incredible primary school that the teachers told me very early on, you're great, you can do anything you want to do, like write this play for us. And then I went to an amazing secondary school 
um, which did the same. So I had an environment around me that as a young black girl in Wolverhampton told me that I could kind of do anything. The thing I'm really curious about is what's happening when I'm not in the room and what's happening that I don't notice where things are slightly more insidious or where they are, uh, it's almost like boiling the frog. Like I wouldn't notice until five years later or 10 years later that actually I'd been facing discrimination. And what I mean by that is two people start a business that are similar at the same time one of them's going to have a faster progress through the network they know, the school they went to, the colour of their skin, their gender, how they present in meetings, do they have the right language, etc. And then someone else who's got the same exact idea with the same resources doesn't have that kind of privilege that allows the other person, person A, to build their business faster, to have higher like valuation, higher amounts of profit and a bigger network. But you wouldn't notice that until like three or five years down the line. You'd be like, oh my goodness, equal opportunities. Both person are given one million pounds to start. You give two people one million pounds, you know, person A uh, being entitled and privileged and person B not. And they're going to allocate it in different ways. They're going to get a different return. They're going to have different priorities, different focus. And most importantly, they're going to get different help. And that's really interesting that it's not that you're coming at this from a doors were slammed in my face, so I'm going to fight against this. You're actually saying I've been really lucky and this has not been my experience, but I still want to help other people. So it's not... No, I would say it still affects me. It affects me, but not in the physical door being slammed in my face is what I mean. One example might be that I have a tech company, like the Stat World is a tech company, but I might find it difficult to hire uh, white male engineers that don't necessarily want to work for a black woman or don't see black women in positions of leadership and find it uncomfortable. So that means I'm not hiring or able to hire the best engineers, which in turn has a knock-on effect on the ability to build an app as fast as I want to build, which in turn has a knock-on effect on the amount of money I spend. Do you understand what I'm saying? So uh, these things definitely still happen to me. They just happen in a more covert way. So yeah, in terms of the stack world our mission is to essentially allow our members to find the knowledge and the network they need to feel economically empowered i specifically talk about economic power and women's contribution to global gdp because i feel like that is undercalculated i feel that's not at its full potential i feel like women do so much unpaid labor that doesn't literally um, contribute to global GDP and I actually think that if we give our members the tools to create more income for themselves it will give them power in all sorts of ways to be able to make choices whether to change their situation and improve their situation or not it gives them choices around education um, and I think to do all of that you need to connect with people you need a support network, you need community, and then you need information. So experts and advice. And that's kind of what we do. So like I said, we talk about knowledge, uh, all the information workshops, experts, etc. You need network, which is community. It could be I made one friend on the stack, 
And that's all I needed to kind of get through my journey as a new mother back at work. But there are so many networking groups out there. There are a lot of online ones, offline ones, like geared towards different kinds of people, loads towards entrepreneurs. So tell me what it is that's really attracting people because you've got a lot of members now. So there's something really different about the stack and its approach. It would firstly be aesthetic because that's the first thing people see in that we have a really cool brand really authentic brand that's a mix of kind of downtown street style mixed with like uptown gloss and that's really like what we're about I would say the second thing is that it's very actionable so we kind of go beyond um, just doing inspirational panel discussions to make sure that no matter what event we're doing people leave with a takeaway or a tip or a worksheet or an action plan or something that they can do today to get moving i think the third thing is that we are incredibly diverse like a lot of networking groups by the nature of how social tribes work will attract one type of person whereas we have everything from people who have recently left care homes all the way to multi-million dollar revenue CEOs. And I think that diversity of um, experience and gender and race is what makes it amazing. And then I just think it's just a certain thing about a stack member where they are on their game, they look good while doing it, you know, they have a flair and a taste for everything they do. It's a mindset, you know? It's not like, oh, you're in this category, therefore we're right for you. Because the problem with that is once that person has gone past that category, they no longer find relevancy in your brand. And I'm interested in having lifetime members, like genuinely having lifetime members. And the problem as well about making a club or a network that's just just focused on business is that I think in today's world, we're all accepting that as that, that, that life is more complicated than that. And actually, you might have a business problem one day, but you might have a childcare problem, or you might have something else going on. And you don't want to be a member of loads of different networks. You just want one place where you can just be your whole self. Oh, you said it. It's like I didn't even <laughs> write it for you. That's exactly <laughs> it. Um, that's that. The reason why what you said is so important is because of the first line. I don't, you might have a business problem one day, but I don't really believe you can be excellent as business until you've worked on all of the other stuff from managing being a parent and running a business, having good mental health and running a business, um, understanding like how your body works and what your exercise regime should be and having a business, how you manage your energy and having a business. So it's almost pointless, like throwing money at women in some kind of, like I said, diversity and inclusion effort when actually there are so many layers to the problem. And actually what I'm finding is some, mostly the first layer is mindset and confidence. So if you can't solve for all of those issues, you're not going to solve the problem of getting more women entrepreneurs having successful high growth businesses. So we speak to that whole self. Have you discovered that because on your journey through your businesses, you've done a lot of work on those other aspects of your life? And if so, how did you do that? Because obviously the stack world didn't exist (laughs) before you made it. So how did you feed all those parts of you so that you could be a better businesswoman oh my goodness it's taken me 10 years or more it's ongoing it doesn't stop 
New Methods for Women is exactly about that. So New Methods for Women, the Monday session every evening, is about all of the work I've done from reading philosophy to hypnotherapy, which has helped me to do the work that I need to do. Because when I was 19 or 20 and I started my first entrepreneurial endeavour, I was still quite an angry teenager, you know. I was really grieving. My grandfather had just passed away the same year I moved to London. And I didn't know any of these. The thing that was holding this grief, that I was really angry, that I felt kind of lost and abandoned. And what I did was, what any 19-year-old does, I I would like go out, get wasted. I made my magazine because I'm lucky in that I saw this as a creative outlet also. You know, I just tried lots of different things out, but I don't think it would take me another three or four years to be able to kind of realise like what my mind and body was going through between 19 to kind of graduation 23. And then I would say from like 23, 24 for the next then 10 years, I was in like toxic friendships and relationships kind of didn't really know what I was doing with my life like even even though it looked like I was doing great things there's so many things apart from like just creating and starting a business that I think is essential to helping you function well as a high performance entrepreneur because it is a high performance activity um, running a business I think that you have to train like anyone else. If you're an athlete, you'd be training and have a coach. You'd have all of these things. So I think the idea that we're sending out people, like hundreds of thousands of people, to run businesses all the time without supporting them physically, mentally, etc., like the well-being on their journey. So, yeah, I, tr- I did everything, basically. <laughs> I did a cacao drinking ceremony once in a random warehouse in, like, Watford, uh just 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 to find inner peace you know what I mean (laughs) but even that comes back to having an entrepreneurial mindset because if you don't have that curiosity that ability to start looking for solutions you don't even think about doing the cacao ceremony or going and doing your silent retreat you don't you don't ask the questions you don't look for the answers lots of people just accept things how they are and aren't trying to to like go on that journey of self-improvement and that is also what makes someone a better entrepreneur I think self-development happens when you have a guide, like you have some form of person looking out for you. And I can literally list them out, the people who said, why don't you try this? Like I remember my friend calling me up saying, I think you might be codependent, why don't you read this book? I remember another friend, Laura, saying to me like, you know, I can see that you're going through some stuff. Why don't you come with me to this Hindu temple and we'll just go for the day? Do you get what I mean? So like, I actually think I'm a curious person, but sometimes I don't hear the messages immediately. And sometimes I don't hear them until I actually need them. And then actually, sometimes I need someone to guide me through it. So you cannot, you can be not curious, but still uh, have someone kind of, guide you on that self-development journey Uh, because I think that's how wisdom gets passed on from person to person and all of the things that I have um all of the things that I've done to be a better leader mother entrepreneur CEO have come from people saying why don't you try this like one of my investors 
he said, my wife teaches yoga. Why don't you try it? Because you seem overwhelmed. And she's like, changed my life. Do you know what I mean? And w- was there someone then, if we go back to your to your magazine days, because it's quite, it's quite a leap to go from magazines to nail salons. So what, what spurred that? Was that someone's guidance? Was that, how did that happen? Yeah, no, that that's different. When it comes to my ideas, right, they they come to me like a bit of a flash. And then I see the whole thing through from start to finish. I will say to myself, do you know what? I'm going to set up an hour salon. And then I'm like, and it's going to be like this. And these are the people who are going to come. And this is where it's going to be. And this is what our manifesto is going to be. And this is the music we're going to play. And the whole thing starts tumbling out of my mind. Um, it's not a strategy It's or a business plan. It's just a feeling or a vision for how it's going to be. It will like hit me like that. And then I can plan it out. And then what I need to do after that is go and do the research do the reading, the thinking, the reflection. Um, and they just come from, I think, insight and intuition and also being awake and open to the world. So like constantly consuming lots and lots and lots of different sources and seeing patterns in things and being like, well, this is working in this. Can I not do it here? You know what I mean? So like at the time of the nail salon, I was traveling around the world, going to some incredible retail locations, thinking we don't have anything like this in London. We don't even have a coffee shop. At the time of the salon, there was not even one coffee shop that had a flat white in it. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna create something that reflects like what I've seen on my travels. And I'm going to do it in for nails because be, getting your nails done is part of being like a hip hop cool girl. You know, all girls in hip hop get their nails done. So it's not completely random. It's just like, you know, a, a telephone cord like leap. And actually, like I said, when I look back, all I've ever done that has been the running thread through all of these things is I've created spaces for people to meet people, like minded people. Um, you know, the nail salon actually meant that two women who wanted to get butterfly print nails could sit next to each other and connect over that thing. And it turns out they'd probably have a few more things in common as well. Um, so yeah, I, I never see them as random. I will probably in my big 10 year plan do something even, I've got lots of random things in that 10 year plan. Um, but to me, they're not random. They're just more of the same. Can I connect women and can I make them money? I love that. There's, that's the golden threads, and you can see that reaching through your whole career. Um, but with with Warnell, so tell me, give us a bit of a potted history of Warnells because you you had the idea. You said you kind of pulled it out of some somewhere, out of nowhere, out of your subconscious, and then you were like, right now, I'm going to make this happen. How hard was it to make it happen? And tell us a bit about that whole experience because you ran that for ten years, right? Yeah. So. I had the idea in my head and the first thing I did was find a book uh, called How to Open a Nail Salon. (laughs) I read it. (laughs) It had a business plan in it. It had financials. It had, you know, it was so good. It was written by an entrepreneur that's now based in South Africa. Um, How to Open a Nail Salon. I I, I read that cover to cover, devoured it. Um, It's really hard to kind of describe the time you know the iphone has only just come out 
when I started the salon, there was no Instagram. There was no, people weren't even using websites. There wasn't any content marketing. The only nail website that existed was an American nail magazine called The Nail. There was no nail blogs. Um, there was probably like four nail blogs that I knew of. So it was just a very different time and information wasn't like everywhere. I feel like it is now. And I just read this book. It was an ebook. I read it on my phone. And then, because I was so young and naive, I just made a list of everything I would need. I'd need to find a shop, hire some people, get uniforms, do an L training course. Like, I just literally made a list and ticked everything off one by one. And I find, I feel like lists are so underrated. Do you know what I mean? Like make a list and just go through it and let nothing distract you from the list. It's literally as simple as that. And I think the problem is, is as you get older, you start to look at all of the potential risks and that kind of stops you from actually trying something out. And I'm a big believer in just trying stuff out and getting started. And I would say that there are positives and negatives to rushing ahead. So for example... I set up a nail salon by doing such a basic business plan that didn't really take into consideration lots and lots of things um, or think about what the long-term business model or strategy was. I was kind of figuring it out as I went along. So for example, I opened the first salon in Dalston and we were from day one inundated with requests. We did pop-up nail bars all over the world for brands like British Airways, um, opening ceremony for Nike, we would fly to like the Grand Prix in Abu Dhabi, we'd fly to Moscow and we set up these pop-up nail bars. I always saw them as an, a, a random addition to the business. I didn't think they were our business but we could have purely done an events business and I actually like doing events you know. I, I've always seen the community building stuff as ancillary to the full business but it's actually the main business secondly we got requests to open a few salons so I opened one in Dublin I opened one in Topshop in Stratford I opened one in Shoreditch in Box Park and you know what I don't like opening multiple salons like I don't like the idea of having an area manager you know what I mean so I was like oh okay I've learned something new I don't like opening multiple shops because I think it dilutes the core essence of what a war now salon is um so I like okay figured that out and then I made some products but I made them very late I made them like five years into the business so we pioneered um you know this big nail art trend and I was like the last mover in terms of products being a last mover is really good in lots of other industries but it's not in products you need to be a first mover in products so I made products and I enjoyed the process of creation I did not enjoy the process of sales and selling it so I was like okay I've learned something and this is before everyone was doing D2C brands and indie brands and I was like I kind kind of like it not sure if I really like it the cycle of like Valentine's products now mother's day products now you know what i mean being on that cycle didn't really enjoy that i think if people who are young or you know or starting their first business don't even have to be young it's just that as you get older you tend to have more risk i would say whatever age you are if you have less risk i would just try things out because what you're doing is actually having an education in what you 
are going to be like as an entrepreneur and the things that you enjoy doing that you're good at and the things that you're not good at and the gaps you need to fill. The reason I say this is because it's very, very rare, almost unheard of, that people's first business is their multi-million pound big business. I have almost never heard of that, apart from like two teenage gaming whiz kids who started building something at 13 and like it's worth a lot, you know, but even then they're kind of bored of it at 30, they sell it and then they do something else. And I think that what doesn't get talked about often enough is like, I never call them failures, but people's first experiments You know, there are so many companies that had a first experiment that didn't work out that then birthed their bigger, more successful experiment. And yeah, I think that if more people kind of shared their first experiments, it would be more helpful for those who think, oh, if I don't get it right, I'm going to make a fool of myself. You know, no one's going to trust me again with their money, da, da, da. But at the end of the day, what was like my first experiment? And I loved it. And it... It taught me so much. It gave me so much. Um, But I knew from six months into the business, I did not want to run a nail salon. I knew that. But the problem was, everyone loved it. (laughs) So I couldn't close it. After six months, I was like, oh my goodness. So I studied fashion. I did a fashion degree. I thought I was going to be a creative director or a stylist. I was like, I'm shopkeeper. I remember once the shutters, <laughs> the shutters broke on a Saturday and no one could get into the shop. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, this is crazy. This is my life. This is I've my got to life. Fix shutter. <laughs> but you know something? I do actually love being a shopkeeper in the kind of, I really love being behind a counter and helping people. Because when you're a shopkeeper, you can practice efficiency, you can practice customer service, community building. I I loved being the proprietor of a place that brought people together. That that made me super happy. And I just kept thinking, how can I do this at scale? But that point about being able to experiment. And I totally see what you say about when you're younger, you can take a few more risks, you don't have a mortgage. But doing a lot of these experiments, like, you know, opening multiple salons, having a product line, that sounds expensive. How did you afford to be experimental? Were you just amazing with money? Were you Absolutely like- not uh, amazing with money. Do you know what? Firstly, the business was cash flow positive from day one which I think is like important to remember is that salons don't make a large amount of profit, but what they do do is give you a large amount of cash. So there's just a a high amount of cash flow. And it was a case of just juggling. Um, You know, it wasn't, we didn't have any investment in that business until like year seven or eight at all. I just kept making it work where we could, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, um, like living on the breadline. I used to still do consulting jobs and I'd put all of my consulting job money back into the business. Um, so I was still styling and consulting and making a lot of money there. So when things needed to happen, I would just make them happen. It's actually funny because now that you say it, I don't actually know how I did it. <laughs> you talk about sending out that video about how you raise a million. Did you go out to raise a million? <laughs> One of the things I've learned is that if you want to try something and do an even bigger experiment, you do that with venture capital. Um, 
you know, you don't necessarily do that with your own money. And venture capital is so that people can go out and venture forth. They can try things and be pioneers and go out and see what works in the world. And I was very clear that I wanted to raise venture capital for what was actually the first version of the startup, which was Beauty Stack. I researched heavily all the different types of investors. I learned how to do a pitch just off YouTube and through podcasts. And I networked heavily. I didn't actually network, that's the wrong word, because I'm not actually great at networking, believe it or not. But I went to a lot of events and I would just kind of ask a question. I would always ask a question so that people start seeing my face. And then they'd see my face and be like, who's that girl? What's she working on? And then eventually people say, what are you working on? And then I tell them and then I get people excited. So that was kind of the cycle of it. But what I would say is that venture-backed businesses have an expectation to grow exponentially within a seven to 10 year life cycle. And if your business isn't scalable, like couldn't be globally scalable, like the next Airbnb or the next Uber or have that potential, um, it's not really right for venture capital. But that doesn't mean it's not right for other types of funding like angel investing. I like angel investing in products that I think should be out there in the market and people who I think should be backed and supported. Um And, you know, when you angel invest, you don't necessarily expect to see that money back (laughs) at any time. Um, But there's lots and lots of other ways to raise funding for your business. But the best, someone told me this, and I think it all the time, the best funding you can get is from your customers, i.e. make something people want to buy and then fund your business that way. That's great advice. And it's interesting that we're back talking about fundraising because you talked about helping women to fundraise and the stats about how many women do fundraise are just terrifying. It's a fraction, especially in venture. It's tiny, 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 tiny. So are you hoping that like you could move the needle a little bit? If it's right for you, because what I don't also want people to do, and this is kind of goes back to what I say about throwing money at the problem doesn't always solve the problem. What I don't want people to do is go through, like be an amazing salesperson and like manage to raise venture capital. Because that's what it is, by the way. It's a sales process. There are many, many startups that have no revenue, that have shoddy ideas, that have questionable founders that raise venture capital. We know it. We've seen the stories. There's been, you know, uh, tech has had its own Me Too moment. But if they're good at selling, people can raise venture capital. What I don't want to do is encourage a whole bunch of women who are really good at selling to raise venture capital and then not really want to deliver or build that type of business, you know. You might not want to build a fast-growing business. You might want to build a lifestyle business. You might want to build a business that your kids can inherit. Um, You know, family business, like... If it's right for you, then by all means go for it because otherwise the money's just going to a very small percentage of like the same type of people, but I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. But something does need to change. The 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 whole thing needs to change because it is scarily uh, low on women and low on black women especially. And all that means is that you get all of these millions thrown at products that like only a small percentage of people need in the world. For women as well. And I saw that you actually did some pretty cool stuff with WAH. You made, were they pedicure chairs, but they were wide enough for your handbag because you don't want to have to put your handbag on the floor. And I remember I was watching a video of you talking about women-led design and it just seemed like, like 
fireworks are going off in my head like wouldn't that be great women-led design (laughs) it's kind of remarkable isn't it that like we live in this world where not nothing is designed based on our bodies really not even things that are meant to be for us like how long did it take for a bra to be developed by a woman you know what i mean our bodies and our forms are not considered in the way that you know we need to move through the world yeah it's super interesting i've got one more question because i know i've kept you way past when i said i would um which is which is about the experience of a female founder versus a male founder and i know you've only ever been a female founder so you can't really speak to both sides but you wrote a really interesting piece on medium about the unpaid labor of female founders and you re- referenced it briefly earlier talk to me about what you think is this burden that is that is greater if you're a woman running a business and being the face of a business in the modern age I think that since I wrote that article some things have changed somewhat because of all of the backlash against female founders but there is this expectation that if you have a business and you are a female founder, you are expected to also be the face of that business, which is actually a marketing job. It's like the talent. I'm the talent. And it's what people don't realise is how time-consuming it is to also be the marketing lead influencer for your business, as well as doing things like, you know, doing your financial projections, dealing with legal, dealing, like, you know with accounts, doing team building, hiring. There are all of these things that you need to do as a CEO that get deprioritized in favor of, do you have enough press? Is your face out there? Whereas I feel like male founders are allowed to just spend money on on ads, on paid ads. If, they, if, if you have a, a woman-founded business and you say, we, we grew 50% this year because we spent 100 grand a month on Facebook ads, people would be like, what? That's not a viable business. You spend a hundred grand a month on Facebook ads. But if a male founder says that, that's perfectly normal because there's no, you know, there'll be the expectation for female founders. You should just be going out there and selling it and doing events and all of this. Why are you not out there more? Like, why would you um, spend that money on that when you should be able to build a community yourself, you know? Um... I've never heard of anyone uh, complaining to my male founder friends about the amount they spend on Facebook ads versus my female friends. Oh, that's so interesting. I've not heard this, but I I do know that sometimes when I'm interviewing founders, the number of times when I look for social media profiles for male founders and don't find them, but always seem to find them for female founders i hadn't kind of put two and two together you're expected to sell your lifestyle as part of your business but what if you don't want to do that and also a successful business comes from not wasting time getting my hair done getting my lashes done my nails done for the shoot that i've got to do or whatever so my long-term goal would be to build a business that doesn't require my face to sell it or to move further and further away from being the face of something which is why We built this feature around clubs and events to be able to put the power into our members' hands. I don't want to be like some guru sitting there, you know, doing every single event. I'm sitting there hosting the event. The idea is that the community learns from each other and that we allow members to rise and to basically create the content on our behalf. Like we have four events a month 
every single Wednesday and then we do one event every Monday, my weekly event. So that's like eight events a month. And in the four events, I now don't host any of them. I've passed all of them on to different people who have actually come through the member network. So Fundraising 101 is now hosted by Roslyn. You know, Founders Rule is hosted by Katie. They're all hosted by different people so that it's not about me, so that I can actually do my real job. Oh, well, it sounds like you've made loads of progress on that front. And that's so funny, isn't it? Thinking about making ourselves like obsolete in some way, but that's really empowering. It's really amazing to be able to focus on what we're good at and, and not have to do the stuff that just eats up our time. So good luck with that. And Shah, thank you so much for all your time and insight and, and the laughs as well. That was fabulous. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. To chat through all the topics on the show and give us your thoughts on this International Women's Day, come talk to us on your socials using the hashtag SoundAdvicePodcast. And a little reminder that Sound Advice is brought to you by Sage. Over 1 million British businesses use Sage's award-winning software to manage the ins and outs of startup life. So if you want to boss your finances, invoicing and cash flow, take a look at Sage Accounting.